ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Laura Rossbrow Tellum, a podcast producer here at Foreign Policy, and I'm your new host for Foreign Policy Playlist. For the past year, Amy McKinnon has brought you amazing episodes. I want to thank her for all her hosting this past year. I'm going to be taking over the mic, and I'm excited to bring you more of your favorite podcasts from across the world. But for now, we're going to focus on more of the reporting here at FP. I want to bring you an FP Live we did earlier this week about the war in Ukraine and where it's headed. Foreign Policy's editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, sat down recently with former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder. They talked about the West's response, avoiding nuclear consequences, and just how far Putin is willing to go. Just a heads up, this event was recorded earlier this week, so some parts of the conversation may have been overtaken by recent events. Now, here's that conversation. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's subscriber-only forum for live journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy, and it is my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. I have a terrific guest with me today, Ivo Dalder, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO under President Obama. We'll bring him in in a minute. But FP Live discussions, of course, are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks, and we get to dive deep into the issues. As always, it's a perk of your FP subscription that you get to ask questions throughout the conversations too. So click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. So on to our discussion today. Russian President Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine is about to enter its third week. This past weekend was particularly bloody and horrific. The West continues to walk a fine line of imposing punishing economic sanctions and arming Ukraine without actually entering the fight themselves. All of this, of course, is to avoid the risk of Putin using nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, millions in Ukraine have been displaced or have tried to flee the country into neighboring Poland. And as we speak, a range of diplomatic overtures are underway. There are several questions to try and untangle today. I'm most interested in what else the West can still do, how to create off-ramps for Putin, even if he hasn't so far shown any interest in taking them, where this is all headed in the coming weeks, and then longer term, what this means for Europe, for NATO, for the US, and for China. So let's bring in our guest, Ivo Dalder, as I mentioned, served as US ambassador to NATO between 2009 and 2013, 
He is currently the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Ivo, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. Glad to be here. All right. So let's begin with this. There, there are obviously so many long-term implications to get into, but let's just start with the here and now. As Russian forces continue to inch closer to Kiev, and even as these uh, talks are underway, what's your sense of where the conflict stands and, and how long you think Ukraine can hold out? Well, the conflict clearly hasn't gone in the way that uh, Russia suspected it, uh, it would go. They thought this was going to be over in a few days. Uh, that the uh, they would be liberate they would be greeted like liberators and that this would be a cakewalk. Um, we've been there before in 2003. We thought the same thing in Iraq. Turns out that when you invade a neighboring country, that neighboring country uh, uh, tends to be more than willing to defend itself. Uh, and Ukraine has been preparing for the last eight years for for exactly this war, and it's uh, uh, giving the Russians a, a, a big fight. Um, the reality, however, is Russia is militarily stronger and Putin, uh, after a, a few uh, days of having to come to terms with the fact that his initial plan wasn't going to work, uh, has resorted to the same kinds of uh, way of using force that he's done in the past. And he is attacking cities brutally. Uh, civilians uh, and military targets are, are, are indistinguishable. He's going after hospitals, as we saw in Mariupol and, and other places, in a horrific uh, sense. Uh, and my sense is that um, it's going to continue to a while, uh, but in time, uh, he ought to be able to take uh, a, a good part of Ukraine. The question then is, it's one thing to take it over. Uh, it's another thing whether he control it. I think we're in for a long-term bloody insurgency uh, inside Ukraine until uh, and unless there is some diplomatic, um, diplomat diplomatic way out. And let's hope there is. Now, I want to just bring in the idea of no-fly zones. And I know that there are strong voices on, on either end of this debate. Uh, several foreign policy experts, including U.S. military leaders and defense officials, have signed an open letter to the Biden administration urging NATO and the U.S. to impose one. On the other hand, the U.S. and many of its NATO allies have repeatedly said no way a no-fly zone over Ukraine would bring about a direct conflict with Russia. I know you're quite vocally in the second camp, and you've been involved in these discussions before, most notably in Libya. So um, explain to us why this discussion isn't going anywhere and why a no-fly zone is, is not a good idea. So I think you need to look at the larger context within uh, which this is taking place. Uh, the United States and its NATO allies uh, made a number of important decisions that are providing the context for what's happening. Number one, they made a decision that while uh, Ukraine at some point might become a member or would become a member of NATO, that point wasn't now. Uh, and so Ukraine is not a member of NATO. And it's an explicit decision by NATO not to make Ukraine a member of NATO. The second big decision was because it's not a member of NATO, uh, uh, the United States and NATO countries are not going to defend Ukraine either before or during the conflict. Uh, and it's been very clear that the decision has been made. The direct military involvement by the United States and NATO is not on the cards. And the president keeps saying this uh, and NATO countries keep repeating it. So once you've made that decision, the question is, what then can you do to help the Ukrainians defend themselves? Uh, and clearly, uh, Europe and, and the United States have said, well, we will provide them with as much capability and equipment uh, and perhaps even intelligence uh, in order for them to fight their own fight. But 
we as, as NATO countries are not going to be directly involved. A no-fly zone would involve NATO aircraft fl flown by NATO pilots uh, in the battle space uh, over, over Ukraine. I mean, if they're not in over Ukraine, then it's really not a no-fly zone. And then the question becomes, okay, if you have your pilots and aircraft flying there, uh, uh, what happens when there is a Russian airplane? Uh, uh, in, in that space? Do you let it fly? In which case, there is no no-fly zone. Uh, do you only attack it if you get attacked? Uh, in which case, as long as they don't attack you, there is no no-fly zone. Do you attack that aircraft uh, before he, it attacks you or uh, before it is able to drop any missiles or bombs? In which case, you're in a direct military confrontation. And so I think the question is not do we have a no-fly zone or not? The question is, are we willing and prepared to help Ukraine by directly engaging in military confrontation with Russia? So far, the answer is no. A no-fly zone raises that question in a different way. Uh, and, and, and if we are not going to be directly involved, then we shouldn't be flying there. If we are going to be directly involved, then the question is, is a no-fly zone the best way to do that? Much right. of the damage that's being done comes from the ground, uh, from missiles, rockets, artillery, tanks, in which case you'd have to go after those ground forces, i.e. you'd really be in a war. That's, I think, the context within which to take, to take this argument. And I would argue, if you want to help the Ukrainians, let's have a very serious discussion about whether you're prepared to do that by going to war in Russia. If the answer is no, then you can't be in favor of a no-fly zone. You know, the interesting thing here, given what you're saying, is that it's almost as if the, the decision to get involved or not is a black and white one, a yes or no one. But another way of looking at it is that it's quite fuzzy, because there is a chance that for all that the West is doing, um, and let's face it, the sanctions are a form of economic warfare. Uh, arming Ukrainians is a form of being involved in warfare. Um, what is the chance, I mean, if I see this as fuzzy, what is the chance then that Putin sees this as fuzzy and as an act of war? And then in a sense, the West has crossed that line. Well, he may uh, see it in such, in which case he uh, will have to decide what to do about it. Uh, presumably, he would have to attack us. The onus, therefore, of escalation is on him, not on us. If we move beyond and take that next step of direct military engagement by our pilots uh, or our, our capabilities against Russian forces, which is what a, a no-fly zone does, then we are the ones who are escalating uh, that conflict. I'm not saying that's not necessarily a, that, that that should be excluded, but let's have that discussion about where it is. I do think there is a distinction between providing Ukraine with the means to defend itself, um, uh, which is the provision of armaments, and directly assisting Ukraine in the capacity of defending itself. Both are e equally legal, by the way, under, uh, under Article 51 of the UN Charter. Uh, Ukraine has a right to self-defense, and it has a right, and, and if, if asked uh, to get folks to, to help it, uh, it can do so as well. Um, but that, that's where the line is. Now, you're right, economic warfare, I mean, uh, is, is, is going on uh, in a very significant way. And Vladimir Putin may decide that um, that means he needs to respond uh, in his own way. But then the onus of escalation is on him, not necessarily on NATO. And I think that's where the, 
where today uh, the line has been drawn by all NATO countries, and I mean all NATO countries, uh, including the Poles uh, and others, and they're not willing to, uh, to step over it. Uh, if we are going to step over it, let's do it deliberately and let's do it in a way that is likely to succeed in the aims that we're uh, achieving, which means a direct military involvement against Russia. You know, over the last few days, there have been suggestions that perhaps Putin is considering a chemical weapons attack or a biological warfare. Um, you know, over the weekend, uh, Jake Sullivan said that the consequences of such an attack would be extremely severe, but he didn't specify what exactly those consequences would be, probably a wise move. Um, what's your sense of how that would change the dynamic for the US and for NATO? I think it would change uh, the dynamics quite a bit. Uh, it, would, it would become a, a different kind of conflict, uh, 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 particularly if such weapons were uh, used to inflict large-scale damage uh, on, on civilian populations, uh, as, as likely would be the case. Uh, it is also likely the case that Putin would blame the Ukrainians for it and use it as a means to escalate his own attacks, particularly on, uh, uh, on Ukrainian cities. Uh, uh, you know, whether to spell out the consequences is, uh, uh, I hope we are, one, uh, actually planning for whatever those consequences are, that we are uh, talking to our allies about it, if it does involve a military response to figure out, uh, uh, to make sure that everybody is on board. Um, but, but secondly, I think you can't let it happen and, not, and, and, and have no response. After all, uh, we are all signatories to the Chemical Weapons Convention, under which uh, 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 the state's parties are obligated to come to the aid of a party that is being uh, is a victim of chemical weapons attack. So in that sense, there's a legal obligation to, uh, to, to be involved. Of course, Vladimir Putin has used chemical weapons before in, in assassination attempts, uh, both on his own soil against his own opposition and against others uh, in, on foreign soil, which have led to sanctions. Uh, I'm not sure that sanctions or any other sanctions today are, are, are available. Uh, we're pretty much uh, sanctioned out. Um, mm -hmm. So we'd probably have to think about some kind of military response, perhaps taking out uh, the units uh, if we knew where they were that were uh, responsible for engaging in this behavior. You know, so much of uh, our discussion today, but also, you know, just in public discourse has been around punishments, how to punish Putin, how to deter Putin. Um, what about off-ramps? Um, and I imagine a lot of these discussions have to be behind the scenes, not in public. But what kind of off-ramps do you think the West can still offer Putin? And I, I asked this question knowing fully well that he has not taken any of the off-ramps that he has so far been given. Yeah, I, I think the entire idea of off-ramps is, is in and of itself uh, problematic. Uh, this is a war that was unprovoked and, and unjustified. And the only quote off-ramp that I can think of is a return to the status quo ante, uh, which would mean the withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine and Russia's full recognition of Ukrainian sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, uh, which had violated for the first time in 2014. Uh, that is sort of where we are. Uh, Putin wants the unconditional surrender of the Ukrainian government. The Ukrainian government wants the Russian uh, Russia to unconditionally withdraw from all of its territory and finding some way in between is going to be extremely difficult for really for two reasons. One is uh, uh, for Ukraine, uh, it is not likely to want to be in a position given all the sacrifice that is already uh, made 
to, uh, uh, to uh, in, in any way suggest that going to war is beneficial to Putin, uh, whether that is in recognizing these two so-called independent republics or, or even recognizing Crimea, uh, Russian sovereignty over Crimea. Uh, perhaps there can be a discussion about neutrality, which uh, uh, President Zelensky has said he's, he's willing to entertain. Mm. But when you really deep, dig deep into that, what does that mean? And who's going to guarantee that neutrality? Uh, and, and what would that involve is, is, is a question. So I'm, mm. until Vladimir Putin decides that he, uh, that he has miscalculated and takes the consequences of it, it's going to be hard to see how you get to a diplomatic solution, at least uh, for uh, for the immediate uh, in the immediate uh, future, there is scope for discussion about humanitarian corridors, about mm. uh, those kinds of things which are important. Uh, temporary ceasefires or local uh, in order to deal with the humanitarian situation. And my sense is that is uh, still the fundamental focus of the discussions going on between the two sides. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. 'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad I'm Ben Austin we're two best friends one black one white I'm a historian and I'm a journalist and we are back for season two of some of my best friends are where we have real talk about the absurdity and intricacies of race in America join us as we talk to notable guests like former Attorney General Eric Holder restorative justice leader Daniel Sarid and other notable people about how to make sense of this moment listen to season two of some of my best friends are wherever you get your podcast. Welcome back to Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm Laura Rossbrout-Tellum. You're listening to a conversation between FP's editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, and former U.S. ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder. Here's more. So I want to bring in some of our viewer questions. But before I do that, Ivo, um, one big question for you, and that's based on a piece you wrote recently. So assuming, as you've been describing, that this war plays out for several weeks, months, with Russia perhaps even taking Kiev, but stuck in a long insurgency and a civil war. The question then, and it's worth thinking about this now, even though we're in the fog of war, is what the longer term plan should be. So your essay in Foreign Affairs last week, in which you argued for the return of containment, a reference to George Kennan's strategy that was employed throughout the Cold War. Um, Talk us through how such a plan would work and why it's important to consider it at this point? Well, I think the, important, uh, the importance to consider it right now is because uh, up to this point, and I don't see that changing anytime in the future, uh, we have, we, the United States, and our allies in NATO and indeed in the West have decided that we're not going to c- confront Russia directly and militarily in the defense of Ukraine. And so then the question is, what else can you do? Uh, uh, ultimately, uh, I see what happened on February 24th as historically significant as, in some ways, December 7th uh, or uh, November, uh, uh, November 9th or uh, September 11th, uh, core historical turning points. Russia has now made clear that it is an unalterably opposed, uh, not just to Ukraine, but to the post-Cold War European security order and wants to reverse it. Uh, we need to make sure that it does not succeed. We can do that through direct military confrontation, but the costs of that are too high, including the possibility of, of a nuclear war. So what else can we do? 
containment is the way we dealt with that uh, after uh, the end of World War II. Uh, we uh, had a policy of, of counterforce to pressure uh, the then Soviet Union, and we would now pressure Russia um, uh, economically, militarily, and politically. Uh, militarily, it would mean building up our military capabilities in order to make sure that uh, even if we're not prepared to defend Ukraine, we are prepared to defend every inch of NATO territory, as, as uh, President Biden has said. That means a fundamental rethink about our posture, in, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, and built that up. Uh, secondly, uh, it would mean uh, continuing the economic pressure uh, on, uh, uh, on Russia in, a, in an actual decoupling of the Russian economy from the global economy, at least the global economy uh, that is led by uh, Western countries. We're, we're a long way uh, along that path already. We've done pretty much everything we, we can on the financial side. There's more we could do on the energy side, but it has implications for our own domestic uh, economies and the political willingness to, to continue uh, this strategy. And then a, a policy of political uh, isolation uh, that's already happening with regard to sports and culture and, and what we're doing in the UN, but it also involves uh, active diplomacy uh, to uh, work with countries to let them know sitting on the fence isn't really an option here. Uh, I see the conversation that Jake Sullivan's having today that you mentioned in Rome as part of an effort to politically isolate Russia. I see the same with the conversation we're having with the Venezuelans, uh, the conversations we're having in the Gulf. It's not just about oil, it's about political isolation uh, and letting uh, people in Delhi and in Riyadh and in Beijing and, and other places know that if you uh, side with the Russians, there are consequences to that. Uh, and being on the other side is, is, is the right way to go about it. Ultimately, the same goal of this policy is the same as we had uh, during the Cold War, which is that the internal exactly. tension within Russian society uh, will lead to a change in regime. It did happen to 40 years in the case of the Cold War. Uh, I don't think it's going to take 40 years in this case. As long as we're united, as long as we're strong, I see that in a matter of years, the, the consequences will be severe for Putin and Putinism. And that ought to be our fundamental focus. Uh, I definitely recommend everyone uh, watching this here uh, right now and also later to take a look at uh, Evo's article in Foreign Affairs, uh, The Return of Containment. Um, FP, of course, has also published articles uh, on containment, uh, on that idea, uh, including by uh, James Traub uh, and others. Okay, um, I promised to bring in some viewer questions, and I'm going to do that now because otherwise I'll keep going here. Um, Eva, I'll put a couple of them to you together. Um, and, you know, one of the joys of, of hosting these events is uh, the questions from FP subscribers uh, are unfailingly intelligent um, and closely tied to the expertise of our guests. So here goes. Um, I'll throw two at you at one go and you can try and answer them together. Um, Adrian Bloomfield in Kenya asks, if Russia would have bombed NATO convoys shipping weapons to Ukraine, what is the most likely response that the United States and its allies would make? Related, Rich Green asks, how does the recent Russian attack at the training base near the Polish border change NATO's decision and response dynamic, Ivo? So I don't think that NATO, and they're, they're really important questions, but I don't think that NATO is responding any differently in either of those cases. If these are Russian, uh, the Ukrainian convoys, 
uh, carrying NATO weapons inside Ukraine. That's no different than going after a storage site inside Ukraine or, or, or uh, whatever. I just I don't see that changing fundamentally NATO's posture towards uh, this war, which is to assist Ukraine in, in its ability to defend itself without getting directly involved. I do think the strike against uh, 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 the target, the military training base, actually, um, that uh, NATO countries have used to train Ukrainian forces for the past eight years that killed uh, uh, tens of, uh, of um, Ukrainian soldiers and, and, and civilians uh, just reminded people uh, in NATO how close this war is to their borders. Uh, this was, what, 10, 12 miles away from, uh, from Polish borders. Uh, and, it, and it behooves NATO to start thinking about what happens if a missile come, gets across the border, whether deliberately or, 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 or mistakenly, um, uh, because that will be an attack on NATO territory and in some ways would, would, would possibly invoke Article 5 in defense of Poland, not necessarily in getting involved in, in Ukraine. Again, uh, as long as the war remains within Ukraine, fought by Ukrainian soldiers against, uh, against Russian soldiers, uh, it is, I think that's the line that NATO hasn't been willing to cross. I don't see mm. either of those events changing that. Um, you know, related uh, to something we were discussing earlier, I just want to shout out to Simon Reich um, from Rutgers, Milos Jokanovic, both asking about de-escalation instruments. Um, if you missed it earlier, I think Eva was very eloquent um, on talking about off-ramps and, and how they haven't really been useful to even offer up at this point. Um, the question I want to put to you, Evo, now is from Dane Muckler, um, uh, who asks, what is the likelihood that the US and or NATO step up military economic assistance to Georgia in anticipation of future aggression from Russia now? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think you worry about Georgia, also worried about Moldova. Um, right. Uh, another uh, former Soviet territory in which Russian soldiers uh, uh, are on that territory as quote unquote peacekeepers uh, in Transnistria uh, and worry that if Russia is able, for example, to take Odessa in the south of Ukraine, that it could then link in straight into into Moldova. Um, the European Union has already begun a discussion about uh, uh, economic uh, assistance and possibly opening up membership negotiations with both Moldova and Georgia. Uh, important steps to uh, indicate that a, a closer link to uh, the West is, is being contemplated. Uh, I also think that thinking through what kind of military assistance uh, one might be able to provide to those two countries, uh, Georgia in particular, important to remember that Georgian soldiers fought in Afghanistan alongside uh, the United States and NATO uh, countries in, in large, very large numbers. There were times there were 3,000 uh, Georgian troops in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, one of the reasons they did it is because they wanted to demonstrate that they are uh, a good, uh, uh, good allies, good, good um, uh, citizens of the world, and, and also in the hope that if they face a, a problem that uh, they would be helped as well. So I do think that NATO and the United States ought to be spending a significant amount of time thinking about how do you reassure these countries? How do you provide them with capabilities? Uh, to, um, to uh, enhance their security. At the same time, I think it's important to recognize that the Russian military is, has its hands full uh, in Ukraine. Uh, uh, some 50% right. of its total combat power has been committed uh, to Ukraine. The last thing they'd be looking for, one would assume, is another war in another place. 
at least not immediately. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if they succeed in Ukraine, they may get hungry enough uh, to figure out what to do in Moldova and, and Georgia. Um, Ivo, I know you have to go, but I'm going to ask you one last question, if you can make it. Several of our um, viewers, of course, Kaylee Hagan, among others, are asking that we address China. And of course, that, that was going to be my last question to you. So let's discuss China's role. I mean, I think it's still unclear how much Xi Jinping knew beforehand. Um, but one way I look at this is that it's very clear that China is being impacted by this in an adverse way. It's the world's biggest importer of oil, needs a lot of iron ore. It has a wheat shortage this year, and it's going to have to pay so much more to buy wheat and other products on the market. At what point do you think will Beijing try to use some of its leverage uh, to stop Putin? Well, that's the big question, of course, because, of course, they have a lot of leverage over Putin. Uh, if there is a relationship uh, between two countries in which one is more dominant than the other, this is one, one of them. Uh, China clearly has a has a, a, a much greater leverage over Russia than Russia has over, over China. Mm -hmm. the, the, the fundamental question here is less what does China do, but what does Xi Jinping do? Uh, he has really uh, control now over the entire country. He's focused on making sure that he gets uh, another term as president, uh, unprecedented another term as president. Uh, he, uh, he controls the country uh, in, in, large, in large measures and in large ways. Um, and, and so uh, what is he going to do? Uh, my sense is he has thrown his lot in with Russia and with Putin. Uh, and uh, he has decided that uh, being closely aligned with Putin is important for him. Uh, clearly, if you look at what the internal media uh, discussion is, it's very pro-Russian. Uh, to the extent there are economic problems, the, the ones you, you laid out, uh, he can blame them on the West. He can blame them on uh, the sanctions uh, as the reason rather than uh, the, the fact that uh, his friend has invaded another country. Um, uh, he, uh, he's clearly not willing to uh, condemn Putin yet, hasn't condemned him yet. Uh, may feel slightly betrayed by uh, what is happening because it's 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 pretty clear that Putin didn't necessarily say he was going to take over the entire country. But that said, uh, my sense is uh, for Putin for Xi to put uh, throw Putin under the bus just is too big a a step for them uh, when they still are focused on confronting uh, the United States and reduce and, and reducing U.S. influence in Asia and around the world. Uh, I think they look at, uh, at Russia as an ally in that course, and that, of course, complicates for us our own diplomacy and our own uh, efforts to, uh, uh, to find a way out of this war. As long as China is on, on Putin's side, uh, it's less likely that Putin will uh, be willing to settle for anything less than he's trying to achieve. Indeed. Um, Ivo Dalder, I know you had uh, a hard out at the half hour, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ravi. Uh, and uh, to your listeners, thanks for, so much. Enjoy the conversation. All right. Pleasure to have you on. That was Ivo Dalder, former ambassador to NATO, president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He also has an excellent podcast, um, which I urge you to subscribe to. Um, on the issue of China, I should just point out as uh, um, Jake Sullivan and Wang Jiichi, who we mentioned earlier, meeting in Rome, uh, FP will continue to cover that story very closely uh, in the coming days. Uh, sign up for James Palmer's China Brief if you haven't already. 
uh, to get a download on what happened uh, in that meeting and what it means for the world. And of course, lots more coverage examining Putin's war on Ukraine on our website, foreignpolicy.com. If you liked this discussion, take a look at our other forthcoming events on foreignpolicy.com backslash events. You can see a few uh, listed up on the screen there uh, on zero emission power, corruption and democratic decay. That's March 23rd, 24th. And we also have FP's virtual climate summit coming up on April 27 and 28. Uh, before all of that, next Monday at this time, so just a week from now, I'll have Ian Bremer on to discuss the latest on Ukraine and beyond. He's the president of the Eurasia Group. And the very next day, Tuesday, March 22nd, I'll sit down with the two top leaders of the IMF, Kristalina Georgieva and Gita Gopinath, to talk about the impact of the war on the global economy, inflation, oil prices, and much more. You won't want to miss that. Stay tuned for all of that. For now, I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. It was my pleasure to host you this half hour. Take care. See you soon. That was a conversation from FP Live about the war in Ukraine. My thanks to former U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Ivo Dalder, for chatting with FP. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. And I'm your new host, Laura Rosprout-Tellum. Thanks for listening. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.